So we said last week, as we moved into this letter, a second letter that we have recorded that Peter wrote to the church, we said last week that there would be three major themes that we would see in this letter. And one of those themes is Peter urging the church to live fruitful and holy lives. And he's going to say in verse 10 that we are to live this way, live fruitful lives and holy lives to prove the reality of our calling and our election. We don't seek to be fruitful and live holy in order to be saved, but we do it as proof that we have been saved, proof to ourselves, proof to others. And so today we're going to start chiseling away at that first theme. Peter is going to teach us about the cause of our ability to live fruitful lives. It is not just within ourselves or our own power. It's not within that at all. So he's going to talk to us about the cause of the ability that we have to live fruitful, holy lives. Namely, what God has done for us, which is the name of this sermon today or the title of this sermon. As well as he's going to speak to us about the responsibility that we have in responding to what God has worked and is continuing to work in us as we live a life in Christ. So let's go back to verse 3 that Eric just read to us. Let's look at the first part together. If you have a Bible, get that out. And I know the Scripture's in the handout, but I would encourage you to also look at it in your Bible. And if you don't have a a Bible, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we would love to gift you with one today. And if you would let us know that before you leave, we will get you a copy of the Bible. In verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I don't want us to just skip over that. I want you to let that sink in and simmer. And if it doesn't astound you at first, my prayer is that by the time we are done today, the Lord will have done something in your heart that that is astounding to you, that that does move you, that you feel affection and stirring for this reality that the divine power from above has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Us are those who have obtained a faith of equal standing. Those, we talked about last week, the word obtained means to receive. Those who have received faith, the act of believing in themselves as a gift. Those who have come to believe and know Christ. We have all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, we need to learn what life and godliness means there. But as soon as we do, what we know is we lack nothing. For what is important We lack nothing. So in your handout, if you're a note taker, we have four things we're going to look at today. A promise, the means, the result, and the charge. So let's begin with the promise, the promise of God's word. God, who has all power, has called to himself 
those who have no power and given them everything that is necessary for spiritual life and spiritual growth. God, who has all power. When the Bible talks about God's power, it is talking about God's might, His strength, His ability. The power of God is like nothing that we have ever experienced outside of the gospel. You know no power like the power of God. In your life, there may have been a time, or even right now, where you have been granted some kind of power in a situation. Or perhaps you have been around someone who you felt like they have a great deal of authority and power and strength. It is nothing like God's power. We cannot imagine the greatest movie hero that you could see created in the mind of man and put on screens for us to enjoy with all of the mighty power that we could imagine holds nothing to God and to His power. We can't even imagine the power of God. Theologians speak of God as being independent which means he doesn't need anything. We don't know what that's like. We don't know what it's... We think we do because we think we don't need anything, but we really don't. We don't know what it's like to need nothing. I've said it many times because the Bible tells us. We woke up this morning because God ordained it to happen and because he put breath in our lungs. That's the only reason we didn't wake ourselves up. We are not living right now in our own power. It is because God is sustaining us. But God is independent. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything in creation. Acts chapter 17 tells us this. Paul was preaching to the Athenians in Acts 17. In verse 24 and 25, he says to them, The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God's independence in all of eternity is contrasted with creation's total dependence on him for everything. He needs nothing from us, he needs nothing from creation, but creation needs everything from God. Its ability to continue to exist is founded only in him. Man is ultimately powerless. No person can break free of the need for God. The most staunch atheist who spends his entire life shouting that there is no God, does so with the breath God has put in him. And he doesn't realize it. No person can break free from their need for God. And the greatest accomplishments that we could ever imagine for ourselves are nothing to God. They are simply us living out and cultivating the resources that God provides to us and gives life to. Yet, yet, in spite of God's independence 
and our dependence, what Peter says in the second half of verse 3 is that God has called us to His own glory and excellence. That God has called us to come to Him and experience His glory and His excellence. And it really doesn't do that term call justice for us to simply think of it as an invite. The way it is presented is it is a royal summons. That word call is used in other places in the New Testament. For example, when God called His Son out of Egypt, Israel in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament, a summons, a call. And God has called us. He has given us a royal summons to come and experience His glory and His excellence. And even more astounding than that, Not only has this powerful, independent being called us weak and powerless and totally dependent to come to Him, but the Bible says that God has purposed that we would glorify Him and bring Him joy. He doesn't need anything from us, yet He has worked and purposed that we would bring joy to His heart. Zephaniah Chapter 3, I know you're all familiar with Zephaniah, probably read it many, many times. But Zephaniah chapter 3, I've, I've, I've given you this verse before, but it says, The Lord will rejoice over you with gladness, and that God will delight in you with singing. God has called you to Himself, if you have belief in Christ, or if you feel that stirring today. And He needs nothing from you. Yet He has ordained that He would delight in you so much that He would sing over you. That He would have so much joy over you that He would have gladness because of you. If that doesn't astound us, I don't think we're listening with spiritual ears. We get just a glimpse of this, and it's only a glimpse, because we can't, we can't totally understand what it means to be independent. But we get a glimpse of this when, as a parent, you are happy and you sing with delight holding a newborn who you have made, and who offers you nothing but neediness. And yet you are so glad over them that you sing. God is glad over those that He calls to Himself. And because in this royal summons, God bestows upon us the entirety of, of what we need for a life that will glorify Him and bring joy to His heart. He gives us everything we need to live a life that will glorify Him and bring joy to His heart. So look at verse 3 again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So life there means spiritual life, salvation. And we use the the... The theological word is justification. He's given you everything you need to be saved, to be justified before Him, found not guilty. 
and also everything you need for godliness, which is spiritual growth, living a life that pleases him. The theological word is sanctification, growing in godliness. So if you ever ask the question, or if you've ever asked the question, can I really be saved? Can I really be forgiven? Because I know the things that I have done. I know the things that are in my heart. I know the things that are in my mind. Can I really be forgiven? Can I really be made whole? Will he really accept me if I come to him? The answer is a resounding yes. Because he has given you and provided everything that you need for that. Or if your question is, can I truly grow up? Can I really become more godly? Can I really see victory over sin? Even sin that is generational. Even sin that has ran its way through my family, one member after another, one generation after another. Can I really see victory over that? And the answer is a resounding yes. Because He has given you everything you need. You lack nothing because of what He has done. Do not let the enemy tell you otherwise. Do not convince yourself otherwise. Do not, do not think it is hopeless. No matter how many times you have tripped and gotten up and keep going and you're frustrated at yourself because you keep tripping. Here's the reality. The reason you keep getting up is because he has given you everything you need to do so. So keep going or come to him for the very first time. This gospel originated in the mind and the heart of God, and it is accomplished only by His power. You are not asked to do anything because you can't do anything for life and godliness. It is Him and Him alone. And if you try to do anything in your own power, you will fail and miss it. You must trust that He has done enough That He has granted to you everything that pertains to your salvation and your sanctification. Everything. That's the promise. And it is a beautiful promise. And I call you this morning to believe that. That is the promise. Now let's look at the means. The means by which this happens. Let's read verse 3 again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence through knowledge. The means by which God has done this, the means by which He has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, the means is that He has done this by making Himself known. This He has done by making Himself known to you through His Son, Jesus Christ. The knowledge of God is not mere facts. It's not just knowing some things about God, although understanding is important, and we'll see that in a moment. But when the Bible talks about knowing God, it is talking about an intimate knowing. Knowing Him with intimacy, walking with God. Does that describe your life as a Christian, that you walk with God? And that God walks with you. That is what it means to know God. A life lived in His presence continually. Where you're aware of that. 
You're aware that you're in His presence all the time, not just when you come to a church building, but you're in His presence and you want to be, and you're talking to Him and He's talking to you throughout your day. Knowing God is the definition of eternal life according to John 17. Eternal life is to know God the Father and His Son, Jesus. Many people in the world want the idea of heaven, but they don't want God. They want paradise, but not God. But eternal life is knowing God. It's not being in a, just being in a place of peace and being in a place where you live forever. Eternal life is being in His presence and wanting to be in His presence. Knowing God is the divine power that grants to us eternal life and godliness. So how do we know God? If knowing God and walking with Him and having an intimate relationship with Him is how we receive the power of everything we need for life and godliness, that every day when you're in His presence, you are receiving what you need, how do we know God? And we know God through Jesus. Jesus prayed to His Father in John 17, verse 26. And He prayed to Him and said, about His followers, about His disciples, about you who are following Christ now, I have made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who makes God known to you. And it is Jesus and Jesus alone who continues to make God more known to you every day of your life. That means that God has ordained for you to receive power for salvation and godliness, knowing Him through Jesus. That's the means. There is no other way to have the power of God other than knowing Christ. So first, you know Him in the gospel. You come to know Him when you hear or you read, someone preaches to you, whatever the manner, and you hear the message that Jesus Christ was a man who lived, but yet was fully God, and He lived this beautiful, perfect, righteous life that ended with Him going to the cross and being clothed with our sin. And He did so that we might be clothed in His perfection. And you hear that and your heart in some way cries out and says, that's what I need. That's what I desire. That's what I want. I need to be clothed in the perfection of Christ. And when that happens, that is your that is the means by which you now know God the Father because you believed in Christ and His story. And then secondly, this knowledge is something that you continually, re continually receive as you abide with Jesus. Every day, you are called to abide with Jesus. You do so in prayer. You do so in worship and singing. You do so in living your life in such a way that 
makes other people be able to see Him as He is, glorious and beautiful. You do this in studying His Word and letting His Word be in you. And you do this in community. These are all means in which you abide with Christ. A continual relationship with Jesus who continues to make known to you God as you live and grow. You may not even realize it's happening. But every day, in the midst of your frustrations, in the midst of your stress, in the midst of your weariness, in the midst of your day not going very well, in the midst of feeling attacked, in the midst of feeling weak, in the midst of all of those things, if you are abiding with Christ, He is making God known to you. We tend to think of those moments where we're sitting somewhere and we're at peace and the Bible's open and God is just like, we just know He's speaking to us and it's real and it and and it's amazing. But then 90% of our life is us feeling like we are trying to escape out of a fire or we've already been, we've already caught on fire and we're trying to put it out. And the promise is, You abide with Christ. He is continually making God known even in the midst of that. It's not just something that happens in peace. He's no less God in the shadows. We just sang that. It is Jesus who continues to make God known as you live and as you grow. Look at verse 4. By which, talking about his own glory and excellence that he's called us to, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through those precious and great promises you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." These precious and great promises involve God taking you from where you were and making you what Peter calls a partaker of the divine nature. And I want you to see two places in the New Testament that describes to us what this looks like. So in your Bible, if you would, go over first to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's see how Paul describes this to the church in Ephesus. I want you to look And listen to how this is being described, this great and precious promise of God taking us from where we were and making us a partaker of the divine nature. First of all, Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read the first six verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead. Spiritually dead. That's how the Bible describes you. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Paul's there. No one gets to say that that wasn't me. That was all us. No matter what what age we came to Christ, no matter how young, we were following in some way in that season of life the course of the world, and had God not intervened, we would have continued to do so. Some of you, that happened for you at a much older age, so you were able to actually see what it looked like in your life to follow the course of the world. Keep going. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. 
And look at this, were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God, pause, not but yourself, not but someone else, but God. Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. When we were dead, He made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace, you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's worth memorizing. What is the precious and great promise there? That we were dead in our sin, by nature children of wrath, and He made us alive, and He seated us in a place of honor, being a partaker of the divine nature. Look at Titus chapter 3. This is the other one I want us to see. Also Paul writing, Titus chapter 3. Let's look at verse 3. Same picture. I want you to see the precious and great promises of what God has done in bringing us from where we were to where we are, a partaker of the divine nature. Verse 3, 4, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, but... When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In Ephesians, it's we're dead in sin. By nature, children of wrath, we were made alive and seated in a place of honor. In Titus, it was that we were foolish slaves, slaves to passions. When you're dead, you can't make yourself alive. Dead people don't listen to commands. They don't follow instructions. They're dead. And slaves, when you're chained, you can't get free. But we were foolish slaves to passions, but we were saved according to mercy, and we were made an heir. So in your handout, we have the promise, we have the means, and now let's see the result. The result is hopeless, helpless, powerless people who were spiritually dead because of sin, enslaved to the passions of the world, have been resurrected and freed to become like the one who saved them. Nothing in all of our lives should ever stir our hearts more than that. We can, we can be stirred to affection. We can be stirred by things in this world. We can. But they should be tastes, previews, 
of heaven and what God has for us, and they should not hold a candle to how we feel about what He has done for us. That His precious and great promise is that no matter your background with sin, no matter what you have done or what has been done to you, He calls you to make you alive and to free you so that you might become a partaker of the divine nature, seated in a place of honor with Jesus, an heir, an heir, to his divine fortune. And this, according to Peter, is what allows you to escape from the corruption of the world. How do you get free? How do you get loose from the corruption of the world? It is by becoming a partaker of the divine nature. How does that happen? Through knowledge that Jesus gives you of God, who through that knowledge grants you the power for life and godliness. It is incomprehensible for us to present the gospel in reverse of this. It is incomprehensible to present the gospel in a way that says you must rid yourself of sin in order to come to God. That is not the gospel at all because it is only His divine power that makes this possible. As one preacher put it, the gospel is not interested in any of your actions or your conduct or your behavior until you become a Christian. Because before God asks you to do anything, God must make it possible for you to do anything He asks. He must do that work first so that you can respond to Him. What does it mean to be a partaker of the divine nature? It doesn't mean that we become gods. And very interestingly enough, in the culture Peter was writing to, very Hellenistic culture, Rome, who led at that time, had not been able to unseat the culture of the Greeks. And in part of their culture in Peter's day, part of the teaching and the belief was that you could become a god. So it was probably not only familiar for people to hear Peter say this, but to Christians it may have been astounding for Peter to say this because it sounded something like what the false teachers would say. But Peter was not saying that we become divine. He was saying that we get to partake in the divine. So what does that mean? It means that in some sense we get to experience certain qualities that God Himself has. Not all of them. Many of the qualities of God are for Him alone, the most powerful being in the universe. But He shares many of His qualities with us. God is wisdom, and He offers to give us wisdom. God is truth, and He offers to let us walk in truth. God is goodness, and He offers to make us good. God is love. He offers for His love to be in us and to flow through us to others. God is angry against sin. He offers to us to have the right type of righteous anger when we see evil. And God is holy, and He offers us holiness. Christians care about those things. A good test 
Christians care about being like God in the ways they can be. Christians care about having His qualities. They grieve when they see qualities not of God in themselves. They grieve over that. They are not like an ancient French skeptic who expressed an attitude toward life that said, God will forgive, that's His job. Christians don't think that way. We don't think that way. We don't think, I I can just do what I want. It'll be okay because God will forgive. That's what He's supposed to do. Christians don't have that attitude. Christians desire to be more like God. Christians rejoice when they see godliness growing in themselves. And that brings us to this charge from Peter. We have a promise, we have the means, and we have the result. And now... In verse 5, for this very reason, pause, that means because of everything he's just said, everything that he has just said is the basis for what he's about to say. Don't go to verse 5 and just try to do verse 5, 6, and 7 without first understanding verse 3 and 4. Because you can't do verse 5, 6, and 7 unless you know first what God has done. This is not about what we do. This is about what He has done. And so here comes our charge. Let's read verse 5, 6, and 7 together. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. There are two groups of people in the world, those who know God and those who don't know God. There are some who profess to know God, but their life proves that they don't actually know Him at all. John said in his one of his letters, 1 John 4, he said, whoever knows God listens to us, talking about the apostles, those who are ordained by God to write His Word. John said, whoever knows God listens to us, whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Listening means you will obey. Two groups of people, those who know God and those who don't, And the fruit of knowing Him is obedience. I've said this to you before many times. I'm going to say it again because it is worth talking about over and over. Because there are two errors that we can fall into. Two errors very common in Christendom. When it comes to how we grow in godliness and how we are saved, one of them... It's called legalism. Legalism says, God doesn't really supply everything I need. God doesn't really give me everything that I need. So I need to exert effort in order to obtain faith and grow in godliness. And that is obviously against what Peter has just said. The other error, though, that we can fall into is passivity. Passivity says, since God has supplied everything, I don't strive to do anything. And if I do strive to do anything, I'm actually falling back into works. But that isn't how the Bible presents living the gospel. 
Scripturally, we are called to know that it is God who gives us everything we need for life and godliness. We do not do anything to grow our faith in our own power, yet we are called to work at growing our faith. And this is why I have told you many times that I think one of the most fundamental texts, most important verses for us to understand in the New Testament is Philippians 2, chapter chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to act for His good pleasure. Work out your salvation, church, knowing it is God who gives you the desire and the ability to do it. And so here's the charge from Peter. Because of what God has done and is continuing to do for you, earnestly and eagerly strive to fully furnish the faith you have received with greater and greater attributes, which we're going to go over. Make every... Effort means have an earnest concern. Be eager about this. Eagerly strive to supplement, the ESV says, your faith. Supplement means to furnish or fully furnish, to fit it out as appropriate. Because you've received this faith, now strive to go after the attributes that are fitting of this faith that you have received. Strive to furnish what is appropriate in your life for this faith you have received. And what are those things? One, excellence. Excellence. Peter says virtue. Virtue means moral excellence. In other words, church, don't just settle to get by. Don't just do the bare minimum. Seek to be excellent in your faith. Some of you dads in here, you've had that, you've had that lecture with your son, or some of you sons, you've heard that lecture from your dad, because at some point, you've done just what it took to get by, and your dad may have come along and said, we don't do just enough, we do what we are asked to do with as much excellence as we can. We are to fully furnish our faith with a moral excellence, with a vigor, where we we don't want to be apathetic or just get by. We want to do this as well as we can in the power of God. Secondly, understanding. Supplement your faith with excellence, with understanding. Peter said knowledge. It means grow in your understanding of your faith. Seek to do that. We live in a world where there is so much available to us online that we can have access to, so many resources and books that we can understand more about what God has done. There are certain things that we fill our mind with, certain stats and certain facts and certain things that we study that aren't bad, but we are called more so to understand this great gospel and this great God who has given us this gospel. The Bible talks about that there would be those who are zealous for God with no knowledge of Him. Don't be zealous and vigorous without having a knowledge of God that you are vigorous for. Let your zeal for Him be based on understanding. 
Third, restraint. Peter says self-control. In other words, discipline yourself. Your life and godliness doesn't come from your discipline, but you are called to show restraint. There is still sin in you. There is still sin that works against you. Restrain yourself. Flee from temptation. Flee from sin. Do what it takes in order to avoid that. That is one way that you fully furnish this faith that you have received. And be patient. Have patience. The fourth one. Peter says steadfastness. Be patient. Know that what God is doing in you is a work. Be patient. Be patient with others. Be patient with those around you. Know that God is working on them the way He's working on you. So be patient with everyone, especially those in the body of Christ. Because none of us have arrived and He's working on every one of us. Supplement your faith with patience. Supplement your faith with devotion, the fifth one. Peter says godliness. It means to grow in piety. Supplement your faith growing in being devoted to God. That wholeheartedness that we prayed for earlier. Asking God for a whole heart. Supplement your faith with fellowship. Number six. Peter says brotherly affection. That's the love and the kindness we have for one another in the church. I keep preaching it over and over. I'm going to keep saying it. We are made for community. We must be in community. We need each other. We need fellowship. We need kindness toward one another. We need patience toward one another. We need to strive for unity. We supplement our faith. We fully furnish our faith with fellowship. And then finally, love for all. That's how Peter puts it. With love. Not just for the church, but love for everyone. God loves the whole world. We should love the whole world. That doesn't mean God is not angry at sin. But it does mean that He loves, in a sense, the whole world. There's a special love that He reserves for His people and His church. But He has love for everyone that He has made. And we are called to do the same. Now... This list is not in order of what you are supposed to do. This is a style of writing that was common in that day that Peter is using. So you don't go, well, I know I'm supposed to have fellowship, but I really don't have understanding or restraint or patience yet, so I'll get those and then I'll do fellowship. That's not how this works. But I do want you to notice that it starts with the faith that we have received and it ends with love. The faith that we receive leads us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and other people as Christ has loved us. And everything in between are the attributes that we are supplementing our faith with that we might fully furnish and fit appropriately to our lives those attributes that belong to God because of what He has done for us. I want to invite the worship team to come back up as well as our prayer partners for this morning. I want to give you two gospel pleas based on this text and what we have read today about what God has done for us and what we are called to do in response. The first gospel plea is, do you know 
God through Jesus. I know there's people moving around, but please listen. And if you're watching this replay later, listen. I'm not asking if you know about Jesus. I'm not asking if you know about God. I'm not asking if there's some facts in your mind about Him. I am asking, do you have a knowledge of Him that you can say, I walk with God and God walks with me? I want to ask it again. Can you say, I walk with God and God walks with me? That I have intimacy with Him. And right now, if your heart has been stirred that you want that and you're not sure if it is yours, if the faith, the ability to believe is welling up in you, I want to plead with you, don't disregard that. Don't overlook it because you've been in church for a very long time and you're concerned about what your family or your friends or your church might think. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And He rejoices over those who are truly saved. So I plead with you this morning to follow Christ and to not leave this place today until you have asked someone to pray with you about your relationship with Jesus. And I will be glad to do that. In just a moment, I'll be standing actually over here. I'll be standing and you can come and talk to me and I will pray with you. The other gospel plea I have for you this morning is to strive to fully furnish your faith in His power. God promises in the New Testament that what He has started in you, He will finish. He promises that. It's a guarantee. It's why I believe in the perseverance of the saints. If you have truly come to know Christ, you will persevere because God will preserve you. He will finish what He started. So I call you this morning to be eager to supplement your faith with these virtues and repent where you see that they are missing. And this morning, if you need help with that, these prayer partners are here to pray for you. Not because they have perfected these attributes, but because they are serving you in this way. So anything that you need prayer for, because you are eager to supplement your faith, but you are finding it hard they will pray for you. Or if you need God to move mightily in healing, in relationships, whatever you need Him to do, a miracle, come and ask for it. Some things we won't have because we don't ask, James says. So come and ask. And if you're watching the replay, use our website to get a hold of us. Use the contact page and someone will reach back out to you. Father, I ask this morning believing that you will watch over your word to perform it, that you will help us to see what you have done, the incredible, precious, great promises you have given us, and what you have done to take us from being dead people to make us alive, slaves to being free, that we might be heirs, that we might be seated in a place of honor, that we might be a partaker of the divine nature. God, let us, in, in light of all that you have done, strive after supplementing our faith with virtues that are worthy of this gospel you have given us. Let it never be in our minds that it is in our power that we do this. But let us be convinced that we can do this because of what you are doing in us. 
This morning, God, I pray that you will help us to worship, that you will save those who are lost and sanctify those who are far from you. And I ask, God, that those who ask you for mighty works this morning, you will hear and you will answer in your power. Let it be, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.